Here's a sneak peek of what we have today. It was very hard for me to find CE, and that's why I got involved with the Digital Dentistry Institute. The same quality that the lab has been doing crowns for 30 years or 50 years or, you know. But we have very simple technology now that's free. I don't know if people know this. There's a cryptocurrency for dentistry. It's called Dentacoin. Yeah. There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. All right, so welcome back to the business of drilling. We're really excited to have everyone listen in today. We have a really, really interesting guest. Uh, my name is Vlad. I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Bob and Jury. Uh, Bob, how you doing? Doing good as always. Have an exciting guest. This podcast has been like two months in the making, so I'm really excited. And Jury? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be kind of an interesting conversation. We'll see where we go. Today, we have Dr. Faraj Adher. Dr. Faraj Adher is a specialist in prosthodontics. He received his dental degree from the University of Sharjah College of Dental Medicine and then continued his master's in craniofacial science and postgraduate specialty training in prosthodontics at the University of British Columbia. He has founded, co-founded, and actively involved with several international dental associations and has represented Canadian dentists and dental students at multiple international platforms. Dr. Adher is the director of Digital Dentistry Institute, a global educational uh, organization that conducts comprehensive training programs in digital dentistry and implant dentistry. He regularly gives presentations, seminars, and workshops, both locally and globally, on a range of different topics. His current clinical and research interests are focused on the applications of digital technology in dentistry, complex implant reconstructions, and aesthetic rehabilitations. In addition to practicing full-time in Vancouver and Coquitlam, Dr. Edher is a clinical assistant professor and guest lecturer at the University of British Columbia and has numerous publications in areas such as digital dentistry and dental implants. Dr. Edher, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thanks for that introduction. I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. I just have to start by saying you guys um, are doing an amazing job with this podcast. Over the past few weeks, I've been listening to most of them, and I think this is a much needed thing. So I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Awesome. And we're happy to have you here, man. Um, thank you for the, the kind words. We're trying to like just have conversations with different people in the professions, and you're definitely someone that stands out. Um, I'm really excited to get into your story. So before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the topics we're going to talk about today, why don't you tell us about, about yourself? Tell us about your journey and how did you even choose dentistry? Yeah, so um, I, I got into dentistry, I would say somehow by luck or just coincidence. And that's the truth of it. I wish I had a better story. But um, when I uh, when I finished high school, I knew that I wanted to get into something related to the field of you know medicine. And uh, my uncle, who's uh, who's a medical doctor, talked me out of doing medicine and said dentistry is probably a better idea based on his experience. I'm like, sure, why not? So I started off with that because what I've always been passionate about is just, you know, making a difference in people's lives. And I wanted to, my, my, I wanted to do it through a healthcare of some sort. So as I got into dentistry, I started to kind of explore more of the things I liked and the things that I really didn't like and um, found kind of where my niche was. So it all, it all kind of just takes back to the making a difference part of things. That's what inspires me about dentistry and then kind of everything else that I do. Awesome. So how long have you been practicing now? Um, so I went straight through after dental school, I went straight into my specialization program for three years and I've been practicing for four years now since then. So four years in private practice as a prosthodontist. Wow. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't realize that you're, you're a fairly recent graduate by all standards. Oh yeah. Yeah, for wow. sure. Four years is not a long time. And you're but... killing it. Congratulations. Thanks, man. I appreciate I appreciate that. If I can ask a quick question, I've seen a, a bunch of your smile makeover videos on YouTube and, and your other websites. What kind of got you into like cosmetics and prosthodontics in general? Well, 
So when I was in dental school, there are things that I knew I just didn't like. Like I personally did not like um, pediatric dentistry. I just didn't like working on patients that didn't want to be there. Um, I didn't like endodontics because I just didn't like anything that I couldn't see. Right. So there, there are certain things that just steered me away. And then I knew that I wanted to really, you know, focus on something. But at the same time, I get bored really quick. Right. So I didn't want to do something too repetitive. And um, I'm just naturally very kind of oriented to details. Like I'm self-diagnosed OCD. So to me, PROS just made a lot of sense because it's broad it's um there's uh there's a lot that can be done you're involved in a lot of different things and a lot of it is attention to detail so that's how i got into prosthodontics and then from there uh, my 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 passion is really finding details and seeing things that um other people may not pick up on whether that's patients or anyone else so uh, that steered me towards like you mentioned smile makeovers and things like that but I, I always try to break it down as a smiley makeover is a part of anything that we do right it's not it's not just veneers because a lot of people have this perspective that a smile makeover means you're just getting this uh, veneer smile makeover that's uh purely for aesthetic purposes but if you think about it aesthetic dentistry is really a part of anything you do if you're doing a class one filling on a lower premolar that's aesthetic dentistry if you decide you want to make it look good yeah so we had um really really cool uh guest on jonah um he was an all-star from western basically and um yeah he, he's doing a gpr right now in alberta and when we talked to him about specialties right he he kind of explained that he wasn't really sure, you know, whether he wanted to specialize or not in dental school, but after working for a bit in, in his GPR, you know, he really set aside, uh, he, sorry, set his sights on prosto. And I asked him why, um, because when dentists, like dental students talk about prosto, right? Like the first thing that comes to mind is like complete dentures, partial dentures. <laughs> it's not, it's not really something that, you know, dental students tend to enjoy. Right. So maybe can we expand on, you know, the scope of prosthodontics as as a specialty. Uh, yeah, that's such a good point because I still remember when I started my residency, um, to me, it was really challenging because I went straight through, right? So, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this. When you're in dental school, you still don't really have a full grasp on everything, right? It just depends on the experience you get, the patients you get to see. So um, the fact that I went straight through, which you know, it may not be the smartest idea. I still advise people and say, you know, maybe it is a good idea to get a couple of years or at least a few years of experience and get to know what you like and what you don't like before jumping into something. It adds to the challenging part because in a specialty program, you're expected to have pretty much mastered the basics, right? Prepping a crown is not something you're supposed to master in your specialty program. It's something that's a given. And then you start to get into the more complex stuff. So I remember that, um, during my first year, that aspect was challenging. And then the other thing that was really challenging, and I would always tell my friends that had asked me, you know, oh, how's specialization, how's process? And I'd say it's it's completely different than what I had expected in every way. Because that's exactly what I thought it would be. I thought I thought process would be, okay, I'm going to learn how to make like really good dentures, really good crowns, uh, fixed and removable prosthodontics. Um, but the truth of it is the way I view prosthodontics now is you kind of learn how to quarterback complex treatment plans. That's really the simplest way of putting it. Um, being able to tie together a variety of different factors for a patient and then 
come up with a usually um, multidisciplinary treatment plan to be able to fulfill their needs and expectations. That, that to me is really what PROS is about. So being able to look at the bigger picture, come up with a plan, bring whoever needs to be involved, involved to get them involved. And obviously then there's the aspect of the reconstructive or the replacement of teeth part. And that involves removable prosthodontics that can involve fixed prosthodontics that can involve uh, implant dentistry. Um, so the scope of prosthodontics itself is really understanding the larger picture, which means having a good understanding of what ortho can do, having a good understanding of what endo can do, having a good understanding of uh, what a periodontist can do, and then being able to tie it all together. But then the actual work aspect of things can range from anything from, you know, biomimetic dentistry, which is a big part of where dentistry is headed, right? Where we're able to preserve teeth, preserve enamel, preserve what the patient's already got and built to that. So uh, that comes through veneers, it comes through inlays, it comes via onlays. And then you've got your fixed prosthodontics, how to tie it all together for more complex treatments like changing patients' vertical dimension, how to then take a look at it from also the patient's perspective and be able to realize the aesthetic outcomes that they want. And then that, that scope expands to, well, sometimes we're using implants implants for replacing all teeth, implants for replacing one tooth. So the scope's really huge when it comes to prosthodontics, which to me is what makes it exciting and um, and and also ever-changing, right? So it's a constant thing where things are changing very quickly and with technology, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it just makes it even more exciting because it's also adding a layer of predictability that in my opinion, just never existed before. Um, there was a lot of guesswork that was done when it comes to the planning and taking a look at the bigger picture and technology has been able to reduce that guesswork and just make it more predictable, more consistently for, for all parties involved, ourselves, patients, colleagues, labs, and everyone else. Okay. That's really cool. See, I didn't, I, I didn't even think about it like that. Right. But that seems exciting. So you're involved in a number of different things. You, you, you do practice clinically quite heavily. Right. So if you were to say summarize a day in life of a prosthodontist, right, what does your clinical schedule look like? Is it something that's similar to, you know, what a general dentist schedule looks like, or is it focused on, you know, fewer patients per day, higher quality of treatments? Like what's going on there? It actually ranges quite a bit because I, you know, I have a lot of friends that are also prosthodontists and I talk to them and I realize that, it, it can really vary. I can I can share with you kind of what my schedule is like, because what I've really focused on and most of my referrals and most of my patients that come to see me are usually coming to see me for usually what we call full mouth reconstructions, right? So whether that's on implants or on teeth or smile makeovers, but it's something that's more complex where we're usually talking 10 units, 20 units, 26 units, who knows? So for me, my schedule normally looks like a morning of long appointments. Usually I'm prepping teeth or placing implants, surgery, restoring implants. So there's that sort of thing in the morning where I'll typically see one or two patients. And then the afternoon is where you do consults and records and checks and that sort of thing. So it's it's quite different than a general dentist schedule because usually that's on one hour or half hour intervals. Whereas it's it's very, very normal for me to have a patient for four to six hours on a daily basis. Uh, so these longer appointments. But again, I wouldn't say that's typical because I know there's a lot of other prosthodontists that kind of practice in a different way. But to me, that's actually the way I enjoy it the most. 
and we were talking about kind of um, gaming before or other things that you do and I'm sure everyone can relate in some way to this but there are certain things you do where you can kind of really get in the zone right and you really zone in and everything else just fades away so to me that's that's what these longer appointments allow me to do because then we're able to really just zone in. I'm not worried about doing a hygiene check. I'm not worried about getting up and seeing another patient for restoration. That one patient has my undivided attention and it allows you to really start to point out and, and pick up on, on really, really small details, which to me is kind of what makes it the most interesting. So definitely less patients, longer appointments and, um, and then more specific kind of consultations to the things that we're doing because of the referrals that come in. Awesome. If I can ask a quick follow-up question, this, you mentioned about your, your digital dentistry and how the workflow has become so much more predictable. How has um, digital dentistry provided some challenges for you? That's a good question. Um, have you guys used any digital dentistry so far? Like in clinic, do you have intraoral scanners or something that you've gotten to play around with or has a company come in and brought something for you to try to scan or no? Not yet, but we do have intraoral cameras. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, yeah. So, okay. So you, you will at some point. And the challenge that comes with digital dentistry is usually I kind of say the false expectations that that's, that's the major challenge that people face when they try to get into these technologies. It's they have expectations. And sometimes, unfortunately, these expectations come from what companies are selling and what companies are marketing in terms of you'll do things faster. You'll do things cheaper. uh, You know, you'll, your crowns are going to fit with you never having to adjust them. And if you go into something that you've really never done before with that expectation, I promise you, you're going to be very disappointed very quickly, right? So understanding that there's a learning curve is a big part of it. And then understanding what the true value of the technology is another big part of it as well. So uh, my expectations when using technology are never to save money or do things cheaper. It's never to do things faster. It's never to even try to cut corners. That's a big one. A lot of people think that they'll take shortcuts if they start to use technology. And that's actually the opposite of the truth. Sometimes you end up having to do more, but the beauty of it is sometimes you can do more and more efficiently because of combining steps. So it's that kind of learning curve and understanding what the true value is, which always comes down to communication the true value of all these technologies in addition to you know not having pvs in someone's mouth avoiding gag reflexes stone models all of that stuff that yes is great and definitely an advantage to using technologies if we're talking about intraoral scanning right now but the true advantage really really is the enhanced communication that you get like i can't emphasize enough how impactful these technologies have been to me being able to build my reputation in the community amongst colleagues with patients with patients friends uh, because of my ability to communicate at another level and it's not that i use different words it's that i'm augmenting my words with a visual tool that for any human being makes it a lot easier to understand something that's complicated, like us dentists trying to explain something where sometimes we get confused listening to ourselves. So imagine someone who's sitting in a dental chair, they're apprehensive, they're maybe embarrassed. There's a lot that goes goes on. So being able to really enhance that communication is by far 
the main advantage. So having that correct expectation, I think, really takes away a lot of the um, challenges that come with digital technology. And then the second one, which is like with anything else that we do, is a learning curve. There's a learning curve. Your first scan is not going to be as good as your second scan, and your second scan is not going to be as good as your 10th scan. Um, so understanding that, and I don't know why a lot of people don't, because I have a lot of colleagues that you know tell me i bought an itera or i bought a three shape or i bought a scanner and i used it twice and the crown didn't work so now it just gathers dust in the corner and i always ask well how did you feel the first time you did a class two distal restoration i'm sure you didn't enjoy that either but it's gotten a lot better along the way right so just going in with that mindset where there's a learning curve I understand the true value of what I'm going to get out of it. I think that takes away a lot of the challenges that people face when trying to get into this. That's a good way to put things. Yeah. So, okay. Well, on the topic of a learning curve then, right? Uh, like what was your process to get started with digital dentistry? Cause we had a conversation before and, you know, one of the topics that we were kind of talking about was, you know, dental school, it teaches you the basics, but it teaches you basics that maybe don't utilize a lot of the technology that's out there, right? And I asked you if, you know, prosthodontic residency was focused on, you know, digital integrations and using the latest and greatest tech. And the answer was surprisingly that it wasn't as much as you expected, right? So what was your process to, you know, transition from these educational sort of standard of learning with the traditional dental techniques and implementing, incorporating, learning all this digital stuff? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it applies to anything that's relatively newer, right? So anything that's relatively newer, you're not going to have as much, let's say, theoretical ways to learn it as something that's that, you know, you've got textbooks and you've got years and years of people teaching this. So my approach has always been um, take the lead, you know, take the lead with what it is that you want to accomplish, take the lead with what it is that you want to learn. I definitely learned that through residency because a big part of residency was teaching you how to learn on your own, right? So self-directed learning, that's that's a big part of it because, and I think that's important, not just for specialists, but it's important for anyone in healthcare because we need to be able to improve the standard of our care based on what's available, ultimately to provide our patients with the best possible outcomes. So that, that applies technology too. It's taking the lead. So on my end, you know, when I, when, when we were in, when I was in residency, we were still very early on. So we had an intraoral scanner. It wasn't used very often because people have had had bad experiences with it. We had heard of guided surgery. It wasn't being applied very often because some people had bad experiences with it. So on my end, myself and, you know, a good buddy of mine um, who was with me in residency, we would go to um, the only lab or the couple labs in Vancouver that were working with technology and we would just watch them, right? We'd watch what they do. We'd watch how the cases come in. We'd watch how that technology integrates because a large part of the technology is actually in the lab aspect of things. And, um, then the way it kind of worked out is again, we took the lead, we talked to one of the labs and, and we agreed that they would sponsor, uh, UBC with an intraoral scanner. Um, and it was a win-win situation because we worked it out in a way where any case that was sent using the scanner would go to their lab. So, right, they got the business of anyone using the scanner in UBC. So, again, just being proactive, right, and coming up with ways to open up opportunities for you to get experience with the things that you want to get experience in. 
um, I had the option of choosing the topic for my master's thesis. So, um, you know, a, a lot of times um, prosthodontics would focus on biomaterials, like testing out materials and things like that. I was really passionate and I could really see a trend where I knew that the future was going to be in technology. So I made sure that my thesis project was focused on intraoral scanners, because then that gave me a very good reason to really dig deep into the literature, really get a very good understanding of the core of what these technologies are. Um, and then I started applying it. So applying it, making sure that I go through that learning curve. And um, once you get in on this sort of thing early on, it becomes very easy to keep track, right? Because you, you've got the basics and then as things start to change, which they do and they change very quickly in the digital world, you're, you're, on, you're on top of things. Whereas I feel like if you delay, and this is why I think it's a great idea for you know, dental students in your position to really get in on this early without you know, ignoring any of the fundamentals. Those are very important and, and no, one, no one argues that they aren't. <laughs> Um, but getting in early is really going to expedite your career in terms of how you start to apply and how you contribute to these advancements. Um, because I don't think there's a debate any longer that this is going to be very impactful and a part of our profession for many, many years to come. So that, that, that would be kind of my advice. And that's, that's what I did. It's being proactive and just ensuring that you position yourself in a way where you're able to overcome any obstacles that may be hindering you from being able to do what you clearly see is going to impact the way that we treat our patients and ultimately what you're going to be doing for your career, right? And so getting started on that, you you would go through what, like CE basically? Like you just... It was very hard for me to find CE and that's why I got involved with the Digital Dentistry Institute and, and that's why we do what we do, right? And that's, that's why I started the BC Dental Study Club, which is now like the largest study club in Canada because we focus on, on these uh, sorts of things. Because again, something that's new, it's very hard to find really good resources. A lot of the resources out there were companies and that's really useful. That's another way that I learned a lot, right? I talked to companies, I'd have them come in and show us scanners and but you have to take obviously all that with a grain of salt and you have to come up with your own conclusions to things. Um, so CE was challenging. Now, luckily, there's um, a few options out there that do provide comprehensive CE that, that's very um, evidence-based as opposed to manufacturer-based. And um, so that's a good thing. But um, at the time, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging to find. And, and the same applies to literature, right? Like that's still a challenge because if you think about it, if you want to read an article, you know that that article was probably written, you know, at least a few years before it was published or it was studied. If it's actual research, research takes years to do. There's no way you're still using the same scanner from three years ago, right? It's been updated multiple times. Even if you still have the same hardware, the software has updated many, many times in those years. So that, that is a challenge I think we face. It's how do you get the proper evidence? Uh, because evidence can't keep up with how fast technology is advancing. And then how do you get the proper education? Because universities are finding it very challenging to really implement this stuff. Um, understandably so. It's a large investment. There's already a lot on the curriculum. And then CE, I think we're starting to see improvements there. But 
a lot of this stuff is is you know self-driven like you you can you can learn it you can find videos on youtube you can get the basics and then you can start to do it it's different than if you were doing surgery for example surgery is is invasive you don't want to screw up surgery it's okay if you screw up a digital impression right worst case scenario you're going to have to take another impression um, so thinking of it from that perspective is also important. Whereas guided surgery, for example, if you're doing guided surgery, that's another big aspect to digital technology. And that's something like every surgery I do is now guided surgery. There, There is good CE out there. So I definitely did take CE to do that. Because again, that's, that's something where you do want to feel pretty confident and competent before you start applying on patients, because that's an irreversible thing. Do you find there to be a little bit of a divide in the prosthetic community in terms of uh, adopting these technologies and stuff? Because I remember like around two weeks ago, I was talking to a prosthodontist and he seemed to be a bit more on the hesitant side in terms of adopting these digital technologies. And I think his, his exact words were oftentimes they uh, overpromise and underdeliver. And maybe he's just at a different point in his learning uh, as a, like a prosthodontist. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you find yeah. like, a little bit of a juxtaposition in terms of uh, if people no. want to do digital or not? Absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think that ties back perfectly to what I was saying earlier, which is false expectations, right? Over-promising, under-delivering. The big part of that is probably the over-promising and not the under-delivering, right? So if your expectations are very different than reality, um, then you'll find a disconnect and you'll be disappointed. And I think, like I said, a big part of that is how these technologies are sold to dentists. Um, that being said, on my end, there is a divide. Uh, there definitely is a divide. There, there are people who say, you know, no, this slows me down. Uh, technology can slow me down. And I understand that and I respect that and it's not for everyone, right? But I think what we can't debate any longer because there's evidence and we all practice evidence-based dentistry. There's evidence that shows that guided surgery is more accurate than freehand surgery. And there's evidence that shows that experienced freehand surgery is still not as accurate as guided surgery. So the argument of, well, I've been doing this for 20 years doesn't apply. Yes, you're great and you've done 100,000 cases and they've worked just fine, that doesn't mean that we can't constantly improve. So in my opinion, and this is a quote that I actually add to every presentation I give, change is never painful. It's the resistance to change that's painful, right? So just because we're saying something is good does not mean that what we've been doing is bad. And I feel like that's sometimes where the resistance comes from. It's like, no, I've been doing it just fine. And the answer is yes, you probably have been doing it just fine, but maybe we can take fine to great. Right. And if we're able to do that, then I don't see why, why not? So I'm obviously a huge advocate of technology. If it's used properly with the right expectations and, um, and if it's not used for shortcuts, because again, that's where people get into trouble, right? They, they they want to do things quicker, they want to do things cheaper, and then you end up just doing the opposite of what I think the entire purpose of this is, which is to ultimately better treat our patients. Like it's really as simple as that, right? Our clinical decisions are made based off of, will I treat my patient better? And if the answer is yes, then I should do it. If my answer is no, then I shouldn't do it. <laughs> So to me, things are kind of very black and white and technology has proven through evidence and through literature that it's in the white zone where it does allow us to treat our patients better. Jury, you're quite involved in like CE and you, you have a kind of, kind of an insight into, you know, the early stages of, you know, someone's career. How, how important do you think it is to, you know, adopt digital dentistry early on? 
I, I think it's important, kind of like what you were saying, um, when you adopt these kinds of practices and get involved and um, kind of even get involved with the dialogue early on, it kind of spearheads your career in the sense that, um, you know, you're doing it early on. But I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think the biggest barrier is for for practitioners adopting digital dentistry into their practice and, and into the way that they do dentistry? Yeah, that, that's a great question, too. Uh, cost is definitely a barrier to entry, right? So that's becoming less and less of a barrier as we see companies coming up with ways to bring costs down, right? So there are intraoral scanners today that are probably 40% of what they used to be five years ago. So that's changing very quickly. Um, but cost is definitely a barrier to entry. And then I think it's uh, comfort, Right. If you're comfortable doing something, that, that's a barrier to entry to where you say, again, well, I've been doing it and it works. Why, why, why fix something that's not broken? Um, and that's fine, too. Right. Not everyone has to use these technologies, uh, but I think it's worthwhile, especially, you know, where I get passionate about is with younger clinicians that are just starting their careers. There's no reason to put up those barriers. Um early on, right, where where there is clear, like I said, evidence that it helps. But cost is a factor. That being said, it's, it's you know, I'm hesitant to keep repeating that because there are now 3D printers that cost $6,000, right? And if you do the ROI on that, based on just you printing your own study models and you printing your own night guards and you 3D printing your guides if you do any surgery, that ROI is tremendous. Like it, it, it's no obstacle to entry anymore, right? So even if you're just looking at it numbers and not looking at the aspects of ROI that aren't tangible on a financial spreadsheet, like patient comfort, communication, all of that stuff. Uh, so even then, that barrier of entry has reduced because of technologies like 3D printing and, and the things that we're able to do. Yeah, I so think I'm like curious to know what are, what have you guys like? What's the strongest argument you've heard? Um, to not adopt it because I feel like I feel like people maybe don't have these discussions with me because <laughs> I'm obviously a big advocate of it. So I'm interested to know what, what like from your perspective, just listening to different people talk about technology and how it's applied in dentistry. What have you found to be the main obstacle people find to get involved? Yeah. So for me, like personally, what from what I understand, a lot of it comes down to what you talked about already, the cost um, and the transitionary period you know, from an established practice that has, you know, great relationships with labs, having to shift their progress of workflow seems pretty tedious, right? And I think a, a lot of the mentality from, you know, res resistance to adoption of digital dentistry comes from the fact that dentists simply, you know, they, they already are kind of working at their limits, running a practice, scheduling, and uh, making sure the optimization of a practice is up to par. And then when you see dentists that are in their career, you know, 20, 30 years, telling them to fully adopt a new workflow is much easier said than done, right? And so one of the best arguments that I've heard to counter digital dentistry was, you know, a, a lot of, there's a lot of buzz around like CAD cam and milling machines, right. And having same day crowns. And one of the prosthodontists that I was talking to explained that you can't figure out how to mill a crown to the same quality that the lab has been doing crowns for 30 years or 50 years, or, you know, some labs a hundred years, whatever, like they have that experience that 
is invaluable, um, right? And they can fix things for you and they can adapt things for you on say a prep that's not you know perfect or needs some sort of issue uh, that needs to be resolved. The lab handles that initially. And then the other aspect to that too is labs begin to adopt digital dentistry a lot sooner than the clinics themselves, right? And so it transitions into the clinicians being like, okay, well, why do I have to invest? The lab does it anyways. So what's your opinion on that? Like if someone were to say, I don't want to change, <laughs> like uh, yeah. how do you counter? Uh, no, I, I, I completely understand. And, you know, the thing that comes to mind when, when I hear you explain what you've explained is defining, and I think that's important, defining what we mean when we talk about digital dentistry, right? Because that's a big part of it. Digital dentistry, when I say digital dentistry, dentistry and that, you know, it's, it's something that everyone will implement. I'm not talking about same day milling. I'm not talking about same day restorations. I'm not even talking about intraoral scanning, right? So that argument I I'm on board with, I don't do same day dentistry, right? So I, 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 I'm not a big believer of same day dentistry and share side milling for the exact same reasons that you've talked about, which is I'm not going to do it as well as someone who's dedicated to doing a hundred of these every single day. And I'm not a big fan of shortcuts. Like I don't see the value of giving someone a crown the same day when I could potentially give them a crown of slightly superior quality with them waiting two weeks, right? So to me, that's not something that fits into my scope of practice. It definitely does very well for a lot of people. But that takes us back to, okay, then what do we mean by digital dentistry? If we're not talking about milling, if we're not talking about intraoral scanning, to me, when I say digital dentistry, it's really the application of any technology in dentistry. Digital radiographs are digital dentistry, right? And can anyone really argue that digital radiographs are better for our patients than conventional radiographs? I think it's a hard argument to make, right? Understanding the radiation and everything else. So um, to me, digital charting is a part of digital dentistry. Having your charts organized on a, on a software as opposed to paper charts where things get lost, that's to me is application of digital technology and dentistry, which is digital dentistry. Um, but taking that a step back, Let's, let's use the example of a well-established practice. They've been doing what they do for 20 years. They have great relationships with labs. They don't really see the value in having an in-house mill machine or an in-house printer. I completely understand that. But if you're able to really view digital dentistry as just the application of technology, what about the very simple things that you can apply to your patients to just enhance that communication? So for example, let's uh, let's talk about a patient. You know, a patient comes into your chair and they have two central incisors that have old veneers on them that are chipped and worn and discolored and, and the margins are showing. So they're aesthetically they're concerned. Right. We as dentists know what to do at that point, right? We're going to do all of our clinical assessments. We're going to take a look at the margins. We're going to identify if they need to have, you know, gum recontouring. We get into all of that stuff that's very detailed to us. But now let's take a step back and put ourselves in the patient's shoes, right? The patient's there. They're unhappy with the way they smile, right? They're self-conscious of it. It affects their confidence, 
they're very apprehensive to changing it because they know that the first time they had these veneers done 20 years ago, they hated them and they had to live with them for 20 years and now they're starting over. So automatically that patient is apprehensive. They're nervous. Am I going to hate it again and have to live with it for another 15, 20 years? So when you think of it from the patient's perspective, you're doing all the great work that you do as a dentist and you're thinking of all the things that you need to be thinking based on all of the training that we have. And then you're sitting the patient up and you're talking about golden's proportions and we're going to close black triangles and your gingival margins will be subject or your margins will be subgingival. And we're going to use lithium disilicate or maybe we're going to use feldspathic. That and, and I, I'm very interested in psychology, like I'm interested in just human behavior and how it can affect through the way we communicate. No matter how good a job we do with a patient that's apprehensive in the chair, if I'm only verbally communicating these things to them, there's a 0% chance that what's in their mind is going to equal what's in my mind. There will be some sort of miscommunication. Now, it might be minor, it might be major, right? But there, it, it'll never be you'll never be on the exact same page. So that that dentist that's been practicing for 20 years without the use of technology, that's pretty much all they can do. And they've been doing the best job they could do with the means available at that time. But we have very simple technology now that's free. You can download it onto your laptop. It takes five minutes to do with the patient in the chair to do what's called a virtual smile design. Right? You don't have to invest in, in a, a you know $20,000 software to do that. There are literally free applications that allow you to do this. And all you have to do is while you're, while you're doing your clinical examination or while your assistant's doing whatever she's doing, they snap a photograph of the patient smiling. They upload it onto a computer. You have a template for a virtual smile design. Everything you've seen and you now want to express to the patient, you can, within a span of five minutes, put on a screen visually, and then you augment everything you're saying with something that they can see. And at that point, you're pretty confident that they're much closer to where you are in terms of what to expect. And if we talk about informed consent, that's definitely closer to true informed consent than hoping that they understood the words that came out of my mouth. So that to me is where we really get into what is digital dentistry, right? Digital dentistry is just being able to understand and apply these technologies to whatever makes the most sense for your clinical workflow, for your patients, for your team, right? Because team is a big one too. If your team's not on board, then you're probably going to have a hell of a time implementing any of this stuff into your practice. So it's, and, and that to me is a great thing, right? Having that flexibility is, is a great thing because it can be as simple as, implementing, you know, these five minute smile designs during consultations where it's relevant, or it can be as comprehensive as having an integrated, fully digital workflow in-house. And you can be anywhere on that spectrum, but you're utilizing the real advantages of technology. I actually really, really like the way you explained that because um, I think a, a lot of times when people say digital dentistry, we, we automatically go to the extreme of having like everything completely automated. And I think it's a really good way to, at least to appreciate that small little changes can make big differences. And going back to your earlier question about um, what uh, apprehension I've seen, like just in my, um, my experience is shadowing. I think one of the things is the, the entire thing of having your team on board, like you mentioned, like just because you as a principal dentist want to be like digital, that doesn't mean like you have to teach your assistants, you have to teach like other associates, you have to teach hygienists, everyone kind of has to be on the board. And the second thing was about labs. Um, from what I gather, it's it's really, really tough to find a good lab that you have like 
good communication with them. Like they're always on the same page. And if you just completely change your workflow, you might have to consider like maybe changing your lab, like if they're not accepting. So those are a few things I've seen, but I really like the way you explained that, that it's a complete spectrum. Yeah, a hundred percent. And Teams is, is a big part of it, right? And that's where you have to make that assessment. How much do you want to integrate? What's going to work for your practice and what's going to work for your team? And then you have to make a decision. Do you change your team or do you decide on how you want to do things, right? Because that's as, as a, as a business owner, that's, that's a decision sometimes you have to make and there's no right or wrong answer, right? That just depends on your circumstance and your patient pool and where you are in your career. And there's a lot of different aspects to that, but I can tell you, for example, my assistants hate the day that I say we're going to be using PBS because that still happens, right? There are times where I know that I'm going to get better results if we take a conventional PBS impression. And to them, they, they love the digital workflow because it's it's cool, right? Like it's cool to work with, but then it's also very um, instant in its feedback, right? You immediately see what it is that you're doing. You can immediately show your patient that. So uh, it, it's pretty easy to get staff on board if they're not overwhelmed and if they don't feel like their job is now at jeopardy because of them being able to learn this because it's a learning curve for everyone. So also building that safety in the culture of, of the practice, I think is important when implementing any of this stuff too. And then with labs, that's, that's an interesting conversation because I, I talk to a lot of labs and I'm sure this is the same all across the country. It's very rare today in today's world that you'll have a lab that you send a physical impression to that will not, scan it, digitize it, and then go into that digital workflow, right? Very rare. And the reason I say it's very rare for labs is because they've crossed that barrier of cost effectiveness a long time ago. It's just not, it's not feasible really in today's world for them to continue to do what they've done for a long time without significantly charging more than what they used to do. So labs have almost like, I think labs last time there was a statistic, they were at 90 something percent, like 94, 95% of labs were using a fully digital like CAD CAM workflow. Um, and and that's that that sometimes surprises people, especially old school clinicians, where they're like, "No, we have this flow and it works, and I don't want to change it or screw it up." And if if they actually go and see what their lab do, they'll realize that several years ago their lab has switched to a digital workflow, and um, and results have been fine, right? After they've gone through a specific a specific learning curve that's involved. Uh, but again, that's maybe another misconception that digital workflow means you're cutting out the lab. And that's not true. That's only true if you're applying same day milling or same day fabrication, um, which very small percentage of practices do. But otherwise you're working with your lab. It's just probably enhanced communication with your lab too. Because I talk to my labs and it's the exact same thing. Let's go back to that two central incisor case. We've enhanced communication with our patient, but let's think of the two scenarios between what it would have been like in a traditional world 
versus what it's like today. In a traditional world, you would have taken an impression and then sent uh, instructions to your lab saying, you know, two central incisors are being remade for porcelain veneers. Please create ideal wax up. And then you'll tell them lengthen it by two millimeters, whatever it is, and you'll put words down. And then they'll try to do it in wax and then they'll send it back to you. And then you'll find out whether they were on the same page or not. Whereas now with that exact same example, I took five minutes to do a virtual smile design a copy of that is going right to my lab too. And now instead of me having to verbally explain all that to them, what they're going to do is they're going to visually see my two-dimensional smile design and they're going to interpret it and try to relay it onto what they do, which is normally now going to be a three-dimensional wax up or a three-dimensional design on software. So it, it, it's also enhanced communication with the lab, I would say quite significantly and um and I'd be interested to know if there are any, you know, more up-to-date stats on that, but I'm pretty sure we're over 90-something percent of labs now being digital. Why does that topic keep coming up everywhere, communication? I feel like every conversation we have with someone, like the big learning point is like, it's so important to talk with patients, to talk with your staff, to talk with your labs, right? I don't know if Bob or Jury, like you guys can attest to this too. Like for me in clinic, um, right, it's hard to sort of express everything that's going on in my head when I talk about a certain procedure, right? Because to me, it's like, okay, I, I know what's going on. And then I find myself <laughs> doing silly things like saying like, oh yeah, like your three, four is like, it, it, it needs to come out and patients like, what? Like what's a three, four kind of thing, right? Um, so the power of communication with the digital integration in, in your workflow, um, I definitely can see it being like second to none because like actually physically showing like the model and like showing how your teeth can change and you know, what this sort of difference in your smile line can be. Those go a long way in the patient acceptance and treatment acceptance, right? Um, I wanted to touch on this because I know that you have a lot of interests outside of dentistry as well, but one of the big topics that you like to focus on is technology, right? You implement technology within your practice. You implement technology within, you know, your CE courses, you've started CE courses from scratch. So you're, you're quite into business and investing, right? How far integrated in your life is technology? I'd say I'm very interested in the advancement of technology. I definitely, it, it's like a hobby of mine, right? And and it actually takes back to what I, which is kind of strange, but it takes back to uh, what I mentioned, which is I'm interested in, in in psychology more than anything else. What I'm interested in is human behavior. That's that's kind of what I enjoy. That's my hobby. My hobby is to try to understand the psychological and philosophical parts of how humans think and how they behave and why they do the things that they do. <laughs> And somehow that takes us to technology, right? Because if you think about it, technology has affected that at every level, whether we're talking about like how we communicate with each other, like we're all sitting now on Zoom and we're having this awesome conversation and it feels like we're sitting in the same room. That's technology, right? That's human behavior completely impacted by technology. Um, obviously social media and what it's done to businesses and lives and people, you know, every aspect of our lives, if you really think about it, has been impacted by technology. So I think I'm probably how it's been integrated into my life is very similar, I'd say average to what most people do. Like I don't play with VR sets, all the, you know, like things like that. Like I haven't implemented. But I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I have one. I have an Oculus. It's just, it makes me feel like my hands are no longer real after I remove them. So I oh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's cr man, I tried out. Okay. So VR, if anyone's tried it out, um, the first time I was in it, 
I, I it was just I didn't even play the game. I just kept looking around in my hands. Right. Yeah. It's such a weird feeling. And then um, my girlfriend and I went to a VR place and like we got separated. We got put into different rooms. Then we put the headset on the mic and, and like the, the speaker is right in your ear. So and then her avatar is like right in front of me. So it felt like you're right there. So it was like it was like Zoom but on steroids, <laughs> right? Wow. And people, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, criticism for, like, meta and all that stuff that's going on with Facebook right now, right? Um, but it's actually kind of mind-blowing how integrated that seems to get into someone's life when you start adopting it, right? So, you know, like, what is your perspective on, like, this whole sort of shift towards adopting technology into, like, this crazy sort of perspective of blending everything? Like, the, the metaverse, the VR, the blockchain, that all has implications within everyone's life and everyone's industry, including dentistry. So, do you mind speaking to that for a bit? No, absolutely. So, um, obviously, what I share is my personal opinion, and I'm... By no means an expert when it comes to this so it's just me sharing my research and kind of my perspective on where we stand when it comes to all this um, it is something that i've been very interested in and i've delved quite deep into that world in terms of research and just doing my due diligence and investing um, and um, i think that the metaverse if that's what we want to call it now based on facebook also making a huge move and changing the name of their mother company um, is going to impact how humans behave and i say that out of personal confidence like i'm pretty confident that this will become mainstream it's not going to become mainstream the way people think it'll be mainstream it's going to mature significantly over time to become something that's a lot more impactful than what we see now with the applications that are there now. Um, but the applications of virtual reality, augmented reality, I use augmented reality in dentistry, by the way. So it's not something that's outside of dentistry. Like there are applications of augmented reality that you can use in virtual smile design where people put a filter on their face that actually has a designed smile and they can see it in real time looking into an iPad. But virtual reality, augmented reality, and then blockchain technology with the implementation of smart contracts, I think that combination of things is going to directly impact uh, the behavior that we as humans do on a everyday level. So the way I personally view it is that um, we had the, and this isn't how I personally view it. This is this is how it's explained. Um, there was Web 1.0, which was the internet, right? The World Wide Web. And that definitely impacted human behavior significantly, right? It's changed the way we do almost everything. And then there was Web 2.0, which was the introduction of social media and being able to communicate in different ways. And that's definitely impacted everything we do as well. And this is being called now Web 3.0, uh, which is blockchain technology, smart contracts, and the application of these things in a virtual world. Um, and I think that when we look back at this in 10 years, it'll be normal. Just like, I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably, well, you probably do. If you remember when Facebook first came out. I know I was very, like, I, I used to make fun of people on Facebook. I'm like, why are people writing stuff on their walls? Like, this is like silly, right? And I'd make fun of it. And then one day, you know, in embarrassment, I created my account and 
ever since, right? That's just become life now. It's it's very rare for someone to have absolutely no contact with social media. Um, same with like things like Instagram, for example. Instagram, when it first came out, it used to be thought of as something for hipsters, right? Where people just post food, photos of their food and they put filters across it. And people were like, this will never this will never be a real thing, right? Who's interested in scrolling through other people's meals all day? Because that's how it started. And then it matured over time. And now there are multi-million dollar businesses that have impacted hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people's lives that were purely created on these platforms. So that's kind of how I view Web 3.0. It's a platform that's going to create the means for us to interact and behave and transact in a different way than what we were able to do in the past. Initially, it'll seem insignificant and silly and really niche and nerdy and whatever we want to call it, but then it'll mature very quickly because the fundamental technology is sound, and that's that's the main thing in my opinion. It's that the fundamental technology is sound and revolutionary. It's not it's not an it's it's hard to explain in, in a short period of time, but it's not a simple thing. Like this is really something that is game changing, the technology that's there. Its applications now are really simple, but that'll definitely mature. And my my expectation is within the next five to seven years, um, talking about things like blockchain and NFTs will be as mainstream as us talking about Facebook and Instagram. And then implementing VR, AR into digital smile designs. That's a thing. But I think the really important question is, okay, um, when can I start paying for dental treatment with Bitcoin? <laughs> right? Well, is that let, ever going to be a thing? <laughs> let, let me, let me tell you this. If I were to open up an office today and... I, I would accept I would accept uh, cryptocurrency as a form of payment. That's just me. If it was legal, I'd have to do my due diligence and make sure that I'm op- like it's okay for me to do so, and that there's no regulations that prohibit me from doing it because of the fact that it's healthcare. I don't know. I haven't looked into it, but I personally would do it. So the answer is: When will it happen? When enough people decide that this is as valuable as current currency? And if you really dig deep into what current currency is, you realize that eh, it's it's not that hard to find something that's as valuable, right? And that's that's where the entire concept. But there's going to be a very gradual shift in mainstream mindset when it comes to that. But I'm telling you, in a few months, you'll probably hear about a clinic um, accepting cryptocurrency because I'd be more than happy to accept it because of me taking this uh, gamble or I call it an educated gamble that there is long-term, there is a long-term um, chance or I, I think it's a long-term thing. I don't think these things are going to go anywhere. It's yeah. funny you say that because there's actually like, if you Google dental clinics and cryptocurrency, there's like news stories of some dental clinics starting to accept really? cryptocurrency. Yeah. And what I re- wanted to share really quick was really funny. There's, I don't know if people know this, there's a cryptocurrency for dentistry. It's called Denticoin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I looked into that. It did really poorly though. I'm glad I never got into that. I was just going to say that the, uh, the Dent coin was, was not that impressive to me, but to your point, Dr. Farage, like the, I think that's uh, in terms of transactions in between like, you know, 
like one party to another. I, th- I think that's already happened. There's been a bunch of athletes who've, who have accepted their uh, salaries in cryptocurrencies. I think the Houston Rockets, uh, they like really took a big step. Uh, the Staples Center now is, is, is going to be changed to crypto.com. UFC is sponsored by crypto.com. Like you can see these things coming. And uh, I think like if you, if you look you know, a few years down the line, like I don't think it's too far to say that uh, there's going to be a big change in the financial infrastructure. And I think that's well, COVID has, if, if anything, really just like propelled that uh, with the amount of like money they printed and, you know, inflation and those kind of things hitting in the next few decades, at, at least when we're going to be uh, in, uh, in the workforce, it's going to be a big change. And, and I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I mean, I mean, let's take it a step further. The mayor, if I'm not mistaken, of New York has announced or or the prospective mayor of New York has announced that they will accept their salary in cryptocurrency. I think Bitcoin. Um, you can fact check that, but I think it, it's either the mayor or the or the or the runner up for mayor at the they they announced that they would accept it and that they are doing it to be on the leading edge of innovation, right? That this is the way things are headed. But um, it's interesting because like you said, um, it 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 it's so early on right now that you can be on the forefront of it, but also understanding that it's very high risk at this point, very high risk. And you only have to look back at history to understand how high risk it is. So if we go back to web 1.0, the internet, the dot-com bubble, right? It's it's the exact same, at least in, 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 my, in my opinion, it's the exact same because the fundamental technology of the internet was sound. Right. It was sound. The Internet was revolutionary. It was going to change the way we behave. But then you get a lot of startups. You get everyone wanting to jump on the bandwagon and and get involved early on and just take the take and take it home. So what ends up happening is you end up with a lot of supply which reduces demand in comparison. And then you end up with a lot of projects that aren't really adding value. So that's exactly what happened with the dot-com bubble. Everyone came up with a dot-com project, right? And then once, and and, and everyone invested, that was the problem. Everyone invested in the dot-com bubble. The reason being they did some research or maybe they heard someone talk about it and they were convinced that, yeah, the internet's a big deal. I, I want to get in early on the internet, but they weren't educated enough or they didn't take the time to maybe research enough the actual project that they were getting involved in. So when the internet bubble blew up, what happened is the majority of companies went to zero overnight right? They literally went to zero. They went bankrupt and they disappeared and they were never to be seen again. And the people who had invested millions and millions in those companies went to zero too, and they lost everything. But then out of that bubble, you had companies like Facebook, you had companies like Google, you had companies like Amazon. You had a select few companies that not only were using the internet, which was fundamentally good technology, but they were using it for something that truly was valuable and truly had value for society. And those are the companies that took off. So I believe that it's going to be the exact same with blockchain technology. Right now, there's thousands of NFT projects, for example. And NFT projects are pretty much just, you, they're, they're smart contracts on the blockchain. And you have thousands and thousands of them. And I think that eventually what will happen is they'll go to zero, except for a select few that will take off. So the reason I say that is it's 
it's nice to want to jump on early, but you have to jump on early understanding that it's high risk because over 90% of these things will fail because it is so early on. So that's, um, again, setting expectations, right? Setting expectations for why you're doing what you're doing or why you're getting involved in what you're getting involved in. It's funny how this conversation is taken, taken like a, a circle back in terms of like, uh, you have to, you know, there can be a risk of over, uh, over promising and under delivering. And it's kind of, I guess, like the, the, uh, the thing with blockchain, but I think the two things that everyone has to do is if you are interested in getting like involved in this, you have to do your research and you have to like mitigate your risk. Um, I think those you have things- to only, you have to only, if you're invested, if you're putting money in only put money in that you're willing to lose. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's, I think like very important. Cause that's where, that's where catastrophes happen, right? Where you're mm-hmm. really convinced and you know, the deeper you get into these things, the deeper you're convinced because it's sound. The fundamentals are sound. So you learn about them. You're like, yeah, this makes sense. This is definitely going to take off, but it's just understanding that certain things will, the, 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 the technology will, but unfortunately mm-hmm. you can't just invest in blockchain, right? You have to choose pretty much companies to take off with. And, and that that's high risk for sure. Absolutely. This seems like it's a conversation that it can be its own hour. But unfortunately, we are getting closer to an hour. And Dr. Edher, I love to keep talking to you about blockchain. I think we need to have you on for another episode where we specifically talk about the applications of blockchain. But I wanted to leave off on a feedback from Bob or Jury. If you guys have any closing remarks before we sign off with Dr. Edher. I want to ask you, Dr. Edher, so as young professionals who are going to enter the dental uh, workforce soon, what would be your one or two recommendations for someone who wants to get involved in 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 digital technology and learn on you know any uh, any place on that spectrum? What would be your recommendation to take the right steps to to enter that field? I would I would say number one, do your research and, and set your expectations for what you want to achieve from this. Right. So don't go in blindly. And I think we we all have to have like a, a North Star. Right. So if, if that North Star is to treat our patients better, it just makes everything easy. Right. To, to me, there's no there, there's really no um, it, it's an easy answer. You look at something and you ask yourself, is this going to allow me to treat my patients better? Yes. Okay. No, no, it's, it's very easy. So if you have something like that, that guides you, that helps you navigate through this, because it's a crazy world out there, right? There's new technologies every week that are coming out. There's new things that are trying, that are being sold to us every single day. So having that sort of North star where, you know, where you are headed and what you want to implement, I think is a really important aspect to it. And then the second thing is get involved, get involved with study. Like I'm going to plug this in because I think it'll add value to people, but like the, the BC dental study club, it's free. Right. And the reason I did it is because I'm passionate about having people get involved and find out what's right for them. So it's literally free to anyone in Canada that's involved in dentistry. And we meet once a month and we just discuss things like this and we discuss cases and we discuss technology and we do things like that. And it's largest study club in Canada. Now we have 800 members. So um, getting involved in things like that. And there's a lot of great groups out there too, outside of this, right? There's some Facebook groups that are really nice on a global level. So just getting involved in this sort of thing and asking questions and seeing how people are implementing this stuff, um, I think is the best way to get a taste of what's out there and then be able to judge what you think is going to be the most applicable to you and your practice and your patients. Dr. Edher, how can people reach out to you if they have any questions? You can 
always find me on social media. So my name is Dr. Faraj Adher on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And then my email is faraj.edher at gmail.com. So yeah, well, I, I, I always enjoy these conversations and enjoy people's questions when it comes to these things. And um, it's exciting. It's definitely an exciting time to be alive, really, with everything happening, not just in dentistry. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This has been the business of drilling. Check out debbieacademy.ca and find us on Instagram at debbie.academy. Thanks for tuning in today, uh, Dr. Raj Thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great day and we'll uh, talk soon. All right. Thanks. This is great. Thanks. Thanks.